take take an opportunity. Don't be afraid to say yes to those opportunities because yes, there will be some discomfort, but growth comes from discomfort. The opportunities that are presented from the NATA and district and state level organizations. Welcome to the NATA cast, the official podcast of the National Athletic Trainers Association. The NATA cast is your audio source for exclusive insight from NATA, our leadership, and athletic training thought leaders. This show will feature in-depth conversations about healthcare topics that interest you, the athletic trainer. Today's discussion is part of a special series titled Dedicated, in which we visit with ATs who have a passion for the profession. Whether it's in a leadership role, an AT who is making strides in research, or a member who is bringing increased awareness to the profession by working in an emerged setting. Dedicated highlights their stories and path as they advance athletic training. Hello, and welcome to the Dedicated Podcast Series. I'm your host, Katie Scott. I am a certified athletic trainer and senior special projects coordinator at NATA. Today's guest is NATA Board of Directors District 9 Director Donna Wesley. Hi, Donna. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much. I'm excited to to join and and have a good discussion with you today. Absolutely. So Donna, you and I currently work together. You are the board liaison to the AT's Care Commission, and I am the staff liaison. So it's been really fun getting to know you over this past year. Um, and I'm just really excited that we get to hop on this podcast and dive a little bit deeper into your professional pathway. So with getting started, first question, let's go way back to the beginning. How did you first get exposed to athletic training? I think I have a similar story to a lot of athletic trainers in that I was a high school athlete and sustained an injury. And we did not have uh, an athletic trainer at my high school, but through the process of working um in rehab, I was fortunate enough to have a dual credentialed PTAT that I worked with and informed me about athletic training when I was in high school and just kind of said, this may be something you'd be interested in because he knew that I was interested in healthcare and knew that I love sports and kind of piqued a little interest right there. And then my uh, senior year as one of the projects before graduation, we had to do a term paper on our selected career. And I chose athletic training and went through that process of learning a lot more about it, doing interviews uh, with some local athletic trainers about the career field and and what it would take to, to be an athletic trainer. And that just solidified my decision in that and knew that the University of Alabama had a program and that was where I wanted to go and was fortunate enough to, to be selected into that program. And it's just kind of been a, a great career choice and have had no regrets since then. So as you were at Bama, Roll Tide, and determining your pathway to which setting, work setting you were going to choose from, how did you get to where you are today? And what any barriers, any challenges you had to overcome? Tell me more about that. I have been pretty 
consistent in my <laughs> in my uh, in setting. Originally coming out of out of school, I thought that college university was where I wanted to stay, but things did not work out for that. And I was offered my first job um, in Mississippi as an outreach athletic trainer in the secondary schools in rural Northeast Mississippi. And that's where I have pretty much stayed my entire career. I've, um, I absolutely enjoy the secondary school setting with over 20, 20 plus years um, in Mississippi. I worked secondary school setting and I worked um, in the junior college setting for a few of those years. I I liked the junior college setting, but I think that there is a greater opportunity for impact at the secondary school setting. Being around younger athletes, and I'd like to think it keeps me a little younger, uh, you know, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I the terminology and and uh, my kids think it's crazy when you know I learn some of use some of their slang terms, but uh, but yeah, for for being in this in this uh, profession for almost thirty years, you know, to to still mm-hmm. enjoy being around uh, young athletes is is good. I don't I don't think a lot of young aspiring athletic trainers realize the amount of work and expectation and pressure that comes with being an athletic trainer in the secondary school setting. I mean, almost always you're on your own. And so we always talk about how the AT wears many hats. You literally probably have a closet full of hats as a secondary school athletic trainer. So what kind of advice would you give a soon-to-be graduating AT student who maybe is interested in the secondary school setting but is looking for advice on how to really be successful in that transition to practice? What would you say to them? Ooh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I think take some classes in psychology <laughs> um, because you you do uh, you do have to to address some of those um, those issues and not necessarily the emotional crisis level because obviously we have we're not fully fully trained to handle that type thing, but we have some basic skills and know when to refer and things like that. But it's just the learning to, to read body language, learning to, to kind of help those, uh, those individuals a little bit more that, that don't necessarily have great coping skills right now. They're still coming into their own and identifying who they are. And you may have athletes that come from a variety of backgrounds and have a lot of different issues going on outside of the athletic environment that impact who they are on a daily basis and and just getting to know them and understanding that impact that they have. So the psychological component, I've been accused of mothering kids too much. But um, you know, as a female, yeah, you're gonna get that from male coaches and especially older male coaches is like, you baby the kids too much. And I'm like, no, I'm listening to your kids. I'm providing a source of support for your kids. But I know the kids probably what they need. And at that time, you can adjust how you interact with them. Sometimes you may be the only person that asks them how their day is, just smiling and, hey, do you, you know, is there anything that you need? There's a lot of different hats you wear. In, in the secondary school setting that you don't necessarily get taught in class. Um, it's kind of experience and uh, adjusting on the fly. Absolutely. 
Was mentorship a big piece for you as you transitioned into the secondary school setting? Did you rely on any mentors or who are your mentors? I did not really have a lot of experience um, and like opportunity going through school to to be at the secondary school level. That was my first job and my first first exposure to secondary school athletic training was was my first job. But uh, I will say that my mentors and some some experiences that I had through my education and in training helped prepare me for that. I was fortunate to come up in a time where some of the restrictions and educational components weren't necessarily as restrictive as they are now, where I, as a student and as a young student, just with the circumstances being what they were at the time, was allowed to travel and work with the team pretty much on my own. And that kind of autonomy gave me a little bit more confidence in my own skills and helped prepare me for I think the secondary school where I was by myself, I had some confidence. I had some communication skills and things I had to do on my own so that I knew what it took to, to, to be that, that lead person and by myself. So packing up for a game, preparing, communicating with the coaches, communicating with parents, communicating with my head AT, communicating with the visiting staff. My experience was as a, as a sophomore, I was supposed to be working a sport under a senior level student, but that senior student decided right before the season started that they didn't want to be in athletic training anymore. So as a sophomore, I was traveling with volleyball by myself um, and working volleyball. You know, obviously I would report to the head athletic trainer every day and we'd had those communications, but as far as the day-to-day practice and travel and set up, it was me. <laughs> and so that experience, um, I think, helped prepare me for being by myself at secondary school setting. My mentors at Alabama, particularly with Sherry Kimbrough and Sanglida, um, and then Bill McDonald and Ken Wright, they set a strong example for me. And that is something that I am so grateful for, of leading by example of the high expectations of professionalism and involvement and the way things should be done. Yeah, absolutely. And what's been really cool is just seeing the amount of resources that have come out over the course of the last, I mean, even five, 10 years specific to the secondary school setting, right? So things that I have thought about and have seen over the last, since I've started at NETA, there's the mental health wellness resources where ATs in the secondary school setting can utilize that to track the mental health wellness ebbs and flows of their student athletes, right? You have um, ATs Care and ATs Care offers training if you want to take that above and beyond education on how to manage critical incident stress management, not only for yourself and your peers, but your students too. Um, The secondary school committee has the pass. We have the mentorship match program. So although, you know, there's a ton of challenges of being in the secondary school setting, especially on your own, 
it's really encouraging to see all the work that the membership is doing towards supporting the athletic trainer working in that setting to be as successful as they can, both in their transition to practice phase, as well as a seasoned veteran. Absolutely. And, you know, those, those ideas came from our, our own members and seeing mm-hmm. that need and helping to, um, to fill those gaps in and help those young and seasoned members uh, to, to advance and develop professionally. Um, and deal with those areas that that we may not fully get in our educational and clinical setting preparation. So it's it's that advanced knowledge, and those are great resources. Absolutely. So Donna, switching gears a little bit, let's go into your pathway to leadership. Did you always did you know you always wanted to be the District Nine director? Was that always on like a map to pathway, or how did all of that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think possibly some of those uh, those mentors would have told you coming up that I would probably be one of the last people that they would think would be in this role. But I uh, I think I saw a uh, kind of a need and wanted to make a difference. And that's why a lot of people get into leadership is want to make a difference. Uh, my first I guess first position of leadership in in athletic training was as a state secretary in uh, the Mississippi Athletic Trainers Association. Um, what drew you to that? Because not a of, lot of people like not <laughs> a lot of people know what a role of a secretary is on an executive board. So, like, what drew you to that position specifically? I think specifically was because it was a kind of behind the scenes position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't. I'm I'm not one to kind of put myself out there. Um, and that was a way that I thought uh, I could I could try to make a difference, um, but it wasn't too high up on that leadership. I I could do the work behind the scenes. And like I said, I I kind of got frustrated with what was going on at the state level. Um, backstory: We were hosting our state meeting, and I noticed that very few of the state officers attended that meeting, and I was oh, wow. like. Well, this is this is kind of crazy that that our state leaders aren't in attendance. Why why is that? And just kind of asking, and they had a notice that it would okay. We're going to be having elections for this officer and and this office and this office. And I was like, okay. Well, I was like secretary. I was like, I'm gonna just I'm gonna run. So I was uh, fortunate enough to to be selected as secretary. And served for four years as a state secretary. And that opened my eyes a little bit to what went on behind the scenes in terms of licensure, in terms of the regulatory board, in terms of working on improving the practice of athletic training in Mississippi. And at that time, we had a state president, Chad Barker, was elected as our our state president in Mississippi. And he was kind of a visionary. He was like, he heavily involved in athletic training in the clinical setting and wanted to make sure that athletic training kind of came out from under the direction of the PTs in the clinic. So kind of separated. And he he got the ball rolling on um, looking at the state practice Act and and generating some initial discussions with with the legislature and people about trying to update our practice act. So take me, Donna, take me back then. So you wrapped up your four years as secretary at the state level. Mm-hmm. Was DST at the district level your next move? 
or where did what happened from no i um as 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 the secretary term and kind of you you would think that the initial steps would be like okay secretary and then maybe possibly move up to vice president and then vice president to president that's kind of the assumption of roles is what what most people think mm-hmm. but um at that time chad was was kind of like getting burnout on president and then we thought our vice president was going to kind of step up and and be the one to run for president but our vice president matt smith at the time was going to take another job out of state. And so at one day at lunch, he's, he's like, I really think you need to run for president. And I was, I was like, that had never entered my mind at the time, but he, he was very supportive and convinced me to kind of put my name in the hat. And so I was like, okay. I was like, I don't know. I was like, I'm a small girl from from Alabama. And at that time in Mississippi, everything seemed to be heavily oriented toward um, individuals that graduated from the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jim Gillespie was, is a legacy in Mississippi. You know, he is a living legend. And again, that's another Hall of Famer, but he had some high standards and produced very high quality athletic trainers and leaders. And so it was kind of I'll do it, but I have no anticipation of being elected because I'm technically an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was fortunate enough to be elected as state president. Mm-hmm. Um, so I served from 2004 to 2012 as the state president in Mississippi. So Donna, what I've heard from you a lot with these opportunities is a little bit of hesitancy, but a jump. You made a leap. You took a chance. And we we have a lot of volunteers, prospective volunteers, who maybe are feeling that similar energy where they're kind of on the fence about wanting to jump in and put their name in the hat. What advice do you have to those listeners that are on the fence about volunteering? I would say take take an opportunity. Don't be afraid to say yes to those opportunities because yes, there will be some discomfort, but growth comes from discomfort. The opportunities that are presented from the NATA and district and state level organizations, it's those connections that you get from other volunteers that make this a great opportunity. I mean, it's, I, I have, made more connections and more lifelong friends from getting involved and creating those relationships. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with some people on some committees and, and boards where I would just sit there and go like, I cannot believe I'm working with this person right now. And it's these names were like Mary, Dr. Mary Beth Hordusky. I remember as a student hearing her talk at our student meeting and then seeing her at a members meeting and just being like, I want to be her one day. And, you know, and not thinking that, you know, years later, I would be following in her steps as a district director. That's just crazy. But, um, you know, some of these individuals that that are actively involved and, you know, that you, you're reading position papers that have been written by these individuals. And it's like, oh, wow. Okay. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember. So I, my AT experience as a AT student was Chad Starkey, Doug Casa. And I remember getting to meet both those individuals for the first time as people, not authors names on textbooks. And it it's intimidating at times. They're great people. They did nothing for me to be afraid of them. But the reality is I was just so in awe because those people in essence formulated the foundation of who I am as an AT with their work. I know I have imposter syndrome all the time. I battle it all the time. And I'm hearing some similar stuff with you. How do you or how did you, especially as a young leader, manage that? Because you're obviously here. So you 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 did it. You achieved it. But how did you manage that imposter syndrome? Because I mean, those are some heavy, heavy, great names that you just mentioned. I I think it's um it's kind of where I wanted to just surround myself with people that could kind of help get me there and make some connections and and seek out that time opportunity and don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, if you see them, we're we're human. I mean, you know, you, do not hesitate to come up to to any of your leaders if you see them um at at state and district meetings. But then again, I mean, we're we're working professionals, you know. I I'm on the sidelines Friday nights. I'm at basketball games. I'm like, you know, I have that role, but come talk to me. You know, I'll see you on the sidelines. I'll, I have no, um, no hesitation to talk to anybody, individuals or, um, or colleagues about, um, about the profession or ways to get involved. It's, it's, uh, it's a passion. And yeah, that imposter syndrome, I'm like, I pinch myself. Am I, am I really? A okay. district director. Am I am I sitting in the NATA boardroom? Am I, you know? Um I feel that, sister. I feel that hard. <laughs> so Donna, one of the things talking about being in the boardroom, President Derringer says often in our meetings that she wants to always lead in order to leave the profession better than the way she found it. She's made that part of her mission as the president. She mentions it during board meetings. You've mentioned a few times during this interview about the importance of advocacy and the work you've done at advocacy at the state level and the district level. But dive a little deeper into that. What are what are some ways that you, as a district director, want to leave the profession better than how you found it? That's a heavy, heavy question right there. Um, I think one is helping to ensure that that all of our states can improve their um their practice acts to allow athletic trainers to practice at the top of their knowledge training and skill set. I f- I feel blessed and fortunate to have been involved in that in Mississippi and then Alabama as well recently moving back to Alabama um and being included in their governmental affairs um and their recent update. So working with states to do that um I think that seeing the continued growth of the State Association Advisory Committee, that was uh, early on one of the opportunities that I was given by, at that time, it was President Album who helped with that. And I was fortunate to be to be kind of the first uh, committee chair of of the SAC and seeing where that has gone and how that has developed through 
those that have have followed is great. Again, you want to see things better than the way you came in and the the sack and the leadership um, of that has been great. And now seeing those that were part of the sack also be colleagues on the board is phenomenal um, because it's that that leadership that's developed at the state, the district and national level. The Practice Act, the increasing diversity, I guess. And, and for me, that's seeing people that look like me, you know, involved a little bit more. And I want to make sure that that's an opportunity for all um, individuals and all athletic trainers. When I was coming up again, 30 plus years ago, female athletic trainers were a very small percentage of members and professionals. And now majority of our membership is female. Donna, do you have any favorite leadership quotes? Oh, one is, uh, don't get me to lie and tell you who all said them, but um, it's to be the change you want to see. And then there's uh, there's one from, from Helen Keller that is, uh, alone, we can do so little, but together we can do so much. And I think that's a real appropriate for the NATA and especially at this time. The work that the NATA does on behalf of all of our members at the national level, getting representation in DC and and being involved in in some of these high-level meetings to advance the profession and to have a seat at the table in some of these discussions, whether it's through the Department of Defense with the H2F, whether it is for third-party reimbursement, um, you know, I I couldn't be able to do that just as Donna Wesley ATC, but to have Amy Callender and the staff working on all of our behalfs, I think that's that's an important component of what the NATA does for the members and to advance athletic training profession. Oh, absolutely. And we will link it in the show notes, but I know uh, our government affairs department recently released the most recent NATAPAC newsletter, um, which was really cool to read. 100% win rate on all PAC support this year at midterms. That's a that's a big, big win for us. There's more work to do, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's, always, there's more work to be done. In five, five, 10 years from now, Donna, what would you like to see as wins for the association? I I would like to eventually see an AT being in Congress. I think that would be awesome. I think we're we're gaining ground and seeing some ATs kind of want to take that leadership, the local and state level, but to, to kind of move it up and have an AT in Congress and or in the Senate, that would be fantastic. Some other gains, obviously, we always have third party reimbursement and uh, Medicare recognition for ATs on, on the agenda. So those would be some huge wins. So Donna, advice for our students, young professionals, career advancing professionals, early professionals, maybe they're not quite ready to run for office yet. Um, and I know our topic of finances is always a challenge and burden, though the NATAPAC, I, I would love to see every member donate a dollar to the NATAPAC. Imagine what we could do with that. But how, as a young AT, can you still be involved in the advocacy movement? Because it really is going to take all of us to make those goals you just talked about accomplished. I, I think that uh, 
the advocacy level starts um, starts local. So get out when there's campaigns involved. Reach out to those that are running for office. Identify who you are, what you do, and what your uh, what you would like to see done. If you're at a school, invite those candidates or your leaders to see what you do on a daily basis. They they want to get out and meet and greet and shake hands and kiss babies. And what better way to do that at the um, local level is to being in high school sports. Absolutely. And I know there will be some listeners that go, well, I don't even know who my people are. So we will link in the show notes some search engines for how to look up your state, uh, regional or federal representatives. Um, you can always reach out to government affairs too, uh, directly off the NHA website. And I know someone will be able to connect you with linking who your representation is, but yeah, that's, that's great. And then when you, when there's an ask at the state level to write a letter, make a phone call, do that. I mean, the NATA and the, uh, the Legislative Alert Center has made it quick and easy to do advocacy campaigns and the letters, and they work with your uh, state leaders to to keep that information up to date. And you know, if if something's happening, and sometimes sometimes in the legislative arena, things happen quick, and a response is needed quick. So if you get that that ask to make a phone call to this uh, senator or this uh, this congressman or or your state representative, spend a couple minutes, make that call. Let let your voice be heard. It's a simple thing that members can do, students can do. Um, and like you said, the the give into the NATAPAC, that's um that's great. If I if I ever hit the lottery, that's you know, I'm gonna make a substantial contribution to, to the NATAPAC for that. That's um because our we we're fairly young in in that game, um, and, and our, uh, our coffers not as full as some other ones, but, uh, we, that a hundred percent success rate this year is phenomenal. It really is. Like it um, is. I don't think people realize how difficult it is to do that strate- uh, strategically wise. So I was super pumped to, to see that take place. Uh, Donna, we're going to go a little deep again. So if you could, uh, meet or have lunch with yourself at 25 years old, what advice would you give her? I would tell her that it's okay to say no sometimes. That uh, if you set boundaries earlier, that it's easier for others to to learn and adapt to those, and then for yourself to kind of uh, accept those and make those part of your way of life. I don't know if I saw it as a as like a, a pride point. In not using all my vacation or PTO early on, but it's okay to use your PTO and all your vacation and, and it's okay to miss a practice. Absolutely. And we know that burnout, I hate the word burnout, but we have to say it, burnout, career fatigue, these are all real, real issues in the profession right now. Um, I love the advice that you're giving. What other advice do you have to ATs who maybe are feeling burnt out or feeling fatigued and questioning uh, their longevity in the profession? I think, you know, I think we all struggle with that at times. I mean, there's going to be ebbs and flows. There's going to be hard seasons and things where it's um, days and and 
and seasons will be challenging. I think that for me, my approach has been during those times to focus on what I get to do and not what I have to do. To see that, okay, I get the opportunity to possibly make a difference in some kids life today. I get to to see to see how so and so is advancing in their in their rehab. Um not that oh, I have to do this today. You know, so a lot of it, if you can't change the situation, the one thing that you can change is your attitude about the situation. Early on in my career, I kind of struggled and I was just kind of like, okay, don't, you know, with dealing with a coach, I was like, oh, it can't get worse. I was like, Ooh, never say it can't get worse because yeah, it can. Always get worse. <laughs> you know? exactly. So, so by by trying to stay as positive I can um, as I can, I think that that helps me get through some of those. And again, focusing um, on what I get to do, not what I have to do. Do you have any other weapons in your toolbox for fighting off burnout and fatigue that you feel like are really useful? Having a great support network. I've got my, I, I've got my yayas. That's a group of colleagues and professionals that you know we we vent to each other. We're there for for each other. Life's ups and downs, and and you go through through family situations, or you're just like, uh, you know, and you have to let it out. Um, that's that's who my my support group is. So ha- have a have a strong support group. A glass of wine or adult beverage every now and then doesn't hurt either. And and then, you know, your outlet, whether it be choosing to to get out and exercise or go fishing or if you like to cook, cook, you know, cook a cook a good meal for for some friends and family and, and things like that. But but having having an outlet. Absolutely. Donna, final thoughts for our membership today. Get involved. Make the NATA what you want it to be because your membership is as strong as you want it to be. It's an opportunity and there's all sorts of ways to get it and and advance it and change it and be that change that you want to see. I mean, there's so much, much negativity right now. Let's, Let's focus on some solutions and make it better than we came into it. I love that, Donna. What a great wrap. Donna, thank you for being here today with us. Thank you for your time. This conversation has been awesome. I've loved talking to you about your pathway to leadership, advocacy on all three levels of our association. Um, And I really, I really liked talking about the tools to fighting off burnout and career fatigue. So thank you for joining us today. For those listening, as always, we would love um, to have you all give us feedback constantly. We're going to keep doing these for you. You can reach us at engage at NATA.org. You can reach us on social media. Um, Donna as well. I know you're pretty active on Twitter and on Gather. So please head back and engage with us. In the meantime, though, we will see you on the next podcast. Have a great day. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for tuning in to Dedicated, a special series of the NATA cast. All resources mentioned during this episode can be found in the show notes or at nata.org slash podcast. Listen, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to let us know what you thought or even what you want to hear in future episodes, send an email to the NATA cast at nata.org. 
And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the NATA cast and rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time.